You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about the history of science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on May 4th, 2022. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of uh, History of Science and Technology Q&A. Happy to try and talk about history that I've been involved in and uh, history that I might have studied. Let's see, I see a whole bunch of questions here saved up. There's one here from Matt asking, can you discuss the thinking process of discovery of complex numbers, quaternions, and octonions? Let's see what I, how I can do with that. So the person who's usually credited with sort of the arrival of complex numbers is Cardano. Giordano, uh, Cardano, I guess. And, and the time is around 1500. And uh, here's the thing. People were interested in equations, solving equations, things like polynomial equations. They were interested in things like solving quadratic equations. People learned how to solve quadratic equations in antiquity. It was certainly known uh, to the Babylonians, I think, uh, certainly to the Egyptians, other people knew how to solve quadratic equations. And there was sort of, they wouldn't have written the quadratic formula in anything like the notation that we write it in today, but there was sort of an understanding of the quadratic formula from, from antiquity. Then the big challenge was, what about the cubic? Um, could you solve the general cubic? What was involved in solving the general cubic? And that was a, a sort of a long-term discussion about how could you solve the cubic? And uh, the particularly the casus irreducibilis, the, the, the case of sort of the irreducible cubic, um, how would you solve that? And what was, what emerged was, and um, let's see, I, I, I'm, this history is a bit messy because there were different people who claimed that they solved the cubic and then they were, there was a big sort of uh, a showdown at somewhere in, in Italy where these guys were, a chap called Tartaglia was involved and, and Cardano and so on. And there was a sort of a lot of intrigue and people uh, leaving the secret of the cubic to their heirs and, and then somebody else saying they'd stolen it and all this kind of thing, a lot of, lot of kind of intrigue. But the main thing in the end was, let us have the sort of public demonstration of who can solve the cubic, so to speak. Well, to solve the cubic, you need two things. You need negative numbers and you need complex numbers. And before that time, people had not thought of negative numbers as really being a thing. Yes, you know, you can own five sheep or you can owe five sheep to somebody else. But the notion that there's a minus five sheep that you have wasn't really something that people had identified as a definite notion. I was thinking about this recently and I was thinking about ages. You know, you can be 10 years old but you can't really be minus 10 years old. We don't, we don't have a real meaning right now for saying you're minus 10 years old. That's something where we just wouldn't even discuss it because it doesn't seem to make any sense. Age is a thing where it's like, it only starts when you start to exist, so to speak. And so, so it then progresses over time. And so you know, that gives us some sense of why people before the 1500 or so didn't really take complex numbers to be a thing you should really think about as a single package thing. It's kind of like, we've got five sheep, 
you can owe somebody five sheep, but this notion that you can, the owing of sheep is minus five sheep, so to speak, wasn't really thought about until the cubic equation, where, where there really wasn't a choice but to kind of package together the negative numbers as sort of things that should be considered on their own. And it turned out that along with negative numbers came the square root of minus one, which is sort of the base of what leads you to complex numbers. So that was kind of the, uh, the, the, the cubic was what drove both negative numbers and complex numbers um, to be introduced in, into the world. And I suppose people like Euler in the 1700s had sort of really uh, kind of nailed down kind of the character of complex numbers and, you know, had things like e to the i pi equals minus one, those kinds of things um, that was, uh, uh, that came around that time. Now, in terms of quaternions, generalizations of the complex numbers, um, those were really a chap called William Rowan Hamilton, uh, Irish chap around the 1830s, I think. Um, uh, what he was interested in is, was there a kind of a, a system that would generalize the complex numbers? Was there a way of taking some of the some of the features of complex numbers, just as with ordinary numbers, real numbers, whatever, they have certain features, some of those features are carried over to the complex numbers, some are not. Like for example, you can say this real number is 3.7 is greater than that other real number 2.4, but with complex numbers, there's no real notion of what's greater than what because they're not things arranged on a line. They're things we might plot the, plot the real imaginary parts in, in a two-dimensional plane. And so saying what's to the right of what, well, that might be one definition of greater than, but that's only dealing with, let's say, the, the, the real part of the number and so on. So we lose certain things going to complex numbers, but we preserve certain other things like there's a notion of multiplication, there's a notion of addition. There are properties of multiplication. Multiplication is commutative for complex numbers. A times B is equal to B times A, those kinds of things. So Hamilton wanted to generalize beyond that. And this was a time in the 1830s where sort of lots of generalization was starting to happen, 1830s to 1840s in mathematics. Uh, you know, Lobachevsky had talked about how there could be non-Euclidean space, how there could be a place where the parallel postulate, two parallel lines never crossed, Euclid's fifth postulate wouldn't be true. There could be a, a, a space with um, uh, where that was fundamentally not true. Galois had started talking about group theory, and um, uh, which also was introduced as a result of thinking about solutions to, in that case, quintic equations, and the impossibility of finding a closed form formula for the quintic equation. But in any case, group theory was another case where one had taken kind of the, the sort of raw machinery of mathematics and had applied it to things which were not things like ordinary real numbers, integers, and so on. So Hamilton, I think, was motivated by, by this sort of notion of generalization. It's also the case, and I don't know how much this was related to what he did, that when you deal with three-dimensional rotations, uh, you are, you know, in, in two dimensions, it's very much a story of complex numbers. You can represent sort of a rotation in two dimensions as a multiplication by, by e to the i phi or whatever else. You can represent sort of two-dimensional stuff going on um, and transformations in two dimensions very nicely with complex numbers. But what about the three-dimensional case? In three dimensions, representing a three-dimensional rotation might be represented by a three-by-three three matrix. How does that work? Is there a, a formalism and algebra similar to the algebra of, of, uh, of complex numbers that would apply in three dimensions? And that's um, 
what uh, I don't know to what extent that was what Hamilton was thinking about. I just don't happen to know that a piece of history immediately. But in any case, that was the thing that quaternions ended up being a way to represent three-dimensional rotations. That's sometimes convenient, sometimes not so convenient. There are different approaches like Euler angles and uh, roll pitch yaw, other ways of representing what does it mean to be a particular orientation in three-dimensional space. But in any case, that was the, the introduction of quaternions. And people really thought, I think, for a while that quaternions were gonna sort of take over the world. Complex numbers were, were, were really cool, but quaternions were really gonna be the description of nature. Complex numbers got a boost um, in the 1920s and so on when it became clear that you could formulate quantum mechanics in terms of complex numbers. I happen to believe based on our theory of physics now that a little bit, people went a little bit too far with complex numbers that they packaged quantum amplitudes into this sort of, a quantum amplitude is a single complex number. I actually think that the magnitude and the phase of that complex number are really of separate physical origins. So that packaging of, we can represent this in terms of complex numbers probably was a mistake. But in any case, you know, complex numbers kind of got a bit of a boost there in, in quantum mechanics with, with uh, being sort of intrinsic to that. People thought about quaternionic quantum mechanics as sort of a generalization of ordinary quantum mechanics, but never really got very far. And people over the course of time have, have felt, you know, quantum, that, that quaternions, there's got to be something really fundamental about quaternions. I should say with quaternions that um, just like in, in complex numbers, there's, well, in, in real numbers, we're talking about one and, you know, numbers made the multiples of one, so to speak. In complex numbers, we've got one and I, the square root of minus one. In quaternions, we've got one, I, J, K. There are three, there are four units, so to speak, that one can that one can think about. And for complex numbers, it's still true that A times B is equal to B times A for any complex numbers A and B. For quaternions, that's no longer true. Quaternions do not have commutativity. Just as rotations in three dimensions don't have commutativity, it matters in which order you do the rotations. So that they lose, quaternions lose commutativity. Now there's the question of how far can you go beyond that? And so I, I think there's a chap called Clifford. Um, oh boy, first name, forgotten. Um, the, uh, who uh, started to think about what was the sort of generalized version of this? How far could you go? And um, uh, this led to um, this kind of generalizing quaternions and the generalization of quaternions to our, the next generalization is to octonians and octonians lose associativity. They lose A times B times C being equivalent to A times B times C. Um, so they're at another level and people again have sometimes said, well, maybe octonians are relevant to physics. Maybe they are a, a, a sort of represent some, some core feature of the symmetry of the universe, so to speak, just as quaternions represent things about symmetries in three-dimensional space. That's never really been found to, to work out. Uh, going beyond octonians, um, you kind of lose the, the um, oh my gosh, what are they called? Uh, algebras, what are they called? Sorry, don't remember. Um, the, uh, uh, there's a sort of family of, of things that you can construct that start from the reals, complexes, quaternions, octonians, and it doesn't go on. That, that sequence stops there, at least if you want to have certain properties be true of that, of that sequence. And if you go on, you get into sort of the up, upper reaches of, of rather abstract mathematics that hasn't really come to, uh, 
you know, hasn't really landed anywhere. But so that, that's a little bit on the history of, of um, and I, I don't know exactly when Octonians date from, I would guess about 100 years ago, but I'm not sure. Um, another person who was much involved in this was, was Grassmann, um, Herman Grassmann, uh, in the 1860s-ish, um, was, uh, was very much involved in the kind of, uh, the axiomatization of algebraic kinds of theories and led to this idea of Grassmann variables, non-commuting variables, uh, for which x times y is not equal to y times x and so on, but thinking about kind of that as a piece of an ordinary algebra where you just deal with sort of variables that and polynomials and things that represent real numbers or represent complex numbers, you always have that commutativity, but one can go beyond that. And I think Grassmann, uh, who was who really one of the people who, who was part of the tradition that led to the real sort of axiomatization of things like algebra and arithmetic and so on, of saying, well, you know, people had in the past just sort of said, well, the things that are sort of obviously true about algebra, like that x times y equals y times x. But Grassmann tried to sort of formulate that more precisely as, you know, what is the axiomatic structure that you need to have? In the same sense that Euclid had defined axioms for geometry back in antiquity, it was finally came to algebra to start defining sort of an axiomatic framework for that. And that really only happened in the mid 1800s and, and led eventually to, to things like Piano's work and, and other kinds of uh, final sort of formal axiomatizations of those theories. But uh, I think Grassmann and his work on Grassmann variables and so on was another piece of the sort of uh, tradition that led to kind of this, this notion of generalizing, the, generalizing numbers. Uh, well, let's see, there's a question here. Um, so many different interesting questions. Okay, a question from Universe asking, can I talk about the history of uh, Grothendieck, Alexander Grothendieck, um, and what led to his homotopy hypothesis? I wish I knew this history in more detail. Um, I don't know it in tremendously much detail. Um, Alexander Grothendieck was a, a very abstract mathematician who worked mostly in France. Um, and I suppose his heyday was probably the 1960s to 1970s um, and was really responsible for some very abstract ideas, which actually we get to make use of in our physics project. And um, the, uh, I mean, as a, the personal history of Grothendieck is complicated and, and was very much entwined with um, uh, both sort of the, the um, uh, uh, I guess probably anarchist political movements and then with the, the um, Second World War and um, uh, Grothendieck himself ended up in a, in a, um, uh, in kind of a, a town in, in um, middle of France, um, slightly small, smaller town um, and uh, uh, kind of had a uh, sort of a, a powerful mathematician, so to speak, who eventually kind of broke out and became a, a kind of Paris-based kind of key figure in, in sort of French mathematics and invented uh, a bunch of things in the algebraic topology, kind of, uh, algebraic geometry kind of area um, that uh, ascended to sort of higher and higher levels of abstraction. Um, maybe I shouldn't talk about the technical details of what he did and, and the relationship between um, uh, and this homotopy uh, the, uh, the, the, um, well, essentially what Grothendieck did was to say you can have these sort of abstractly constructed things that are constructed in a sense axiomatically, 
that are constructed by defining relations and so on, that these are very things that are very much things of sort of logic, what we might now think of as computation. And his claim was that in some appropriate limit, there was an inevitable geometrical character, or at least topological character, to those kinds of systems. And that's very resonant with things that I've been interested in about how one can go from underlying computational stuff to things which are like the space that we experience in the universe. And in fact, Grothendieck's uh, hypothesis about sort of the inevitable geometry of these systems is, I think, closely related to the, the cause of, of, of things like continuum space in, in our universe. But Grothendieck himself had a, had, a, had a strange personal history. I mean, I never met him. Um, and uh, he had, um, uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, I've read some of his works on both mathematics and uh, kind of politics. And it's kind of interesting to see the extent to which his kind of view of the world as this very abstract mathematical thing, and then his view of the world as how the world should be when it comes to human society, as kind of a bizarre both, 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 both connection and disconnection between those views. But I think the result of this was that he kind of got very frustrated with the kind of um, uh, the reception of his more political ideas in, uh, in Paris and sort of uh, disappeared um, and, and spent the last 20 something years of his life in um, uh, back in actually, I think near where he had grown up um, in France. And there are lots of exotic stories about people trying to visit him and, and find him and so on. Actually, a, a friend of mine who's a well-known novelist happens to be writing a book about um, uh, sort of that is that is centered around um, um, Grothendieck's ideas. So that'll be very interesting to see how that how that comes out. Um, but uh, it's a very interesting figure in sort of the 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 most abstract end of kind of mathematical thought in the twentieth century. Um, well, let's see. That was a. a there's probably more to say about that, but but let me let me address some of these other ones here. Aaron asks, and I talk about the history of four-function calculators. Um, as far as I know it, let's see. I mean, the uh, uh, there were mechanical calculators. Uh, Leibniz tried to build a four-function mechanical calculator um, in the early in the early 1700s. Um, it didn't work very well. He had a lot of trouble with carries because you know that there was a general problem with mechanical calculators. When you've got the nine 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 add one, all those wheels have to turn over to make the one zero zero zero. That's mechanically difficult to achieve, um, while while not sort of breaking the wheels or or having to have too much force. You know, you you have to. There has to be more force to turn over all those wheels. Yet it still has to work even when you're only turning one wheel and so on. But that was the history. So mechanical calculators, um, they actually led to probably the most, um, the pinnacle of mechanical calculators is a thing called the Curta, which was made in Liechtenstein. And uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, I guess, um, uh, I got one of those as a gift for one of my kids, actually. It's this little barrel shaped thing. It's about, about um, you know, about fist sized object. Um, and it's just full of cogs inside and you set up a calculation on it. It's a purely mechanical device. It's a, it's a pocket calculator that is mechanical. And you set up the, the, the calculation on it and you, you turn all these wheels and so on, and there you get the result. 
it's really a very cool object. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable that that can work purely mechanically. But that had finally been perfected um, in the 1960s and so on. That kind of technology didn't really catch on in huge, huge amounts, but it would be uh, um, a, uh, you know, the four function calculator would be um, a, uh, um, uh, uh, th th that's sort of the mechanical version. I, I'm, I'm, you know, just to give a sense of how history progresses, if you look at Alan Turing's work on, on computation, he'll mention somewhere, he says, well, you could do that um, in this way or that way, or you could use a Brunsviga. What is a Brunsviga? A Brunsviga was a brand, sort of a dominant brand of mechanical calculator in the time of Alan Turing and that's in the 1940s and so on. Um, and actually, I found recently this very charming advertisement for a Brunsviga, which showed a Brunsviga on a table in an airship. Um, and it was advertising, you know, kind of the do your calculations anywhere. It's kind of like the laptop of the past or something. Um, and it's, uh, you know, instead of the uh, and, and that was the, the sort of the coolest location was on the um, uh, on, on the airship, so to speak. So in any case, with. Uh, calculators, electronic calculators, the um, the big thing that needed to happen was, well, transistors had to be invented and then microprocessors had to be invented. And I guess it was some um, uh, Texas Instruments that was really the, the uh, you know, sort of core company in, in, this is in the 1960s, in making integrated circuits. That is, People could make an individual transistor. Back when I was a kid, you could buy a transistor. It was kind of a cool thing. You know, I had uh, sort of an electronics, uh, a bunch of electronics parts, you know, resistors, capacitors, inductors, and so on. And then I had like two transistors. And they were these big things that were, um, that you could use as, uh, as key elements of circuits. But the thing that, that happened in the, in the 60s, I guess, um, was uh, this idea of making an integrated circuit where you could have a little piece of silicon and you could, by lithography effectively, by, by essentially a photographic process of etching things, you could have many transistors on this single silicon chip. And that was what kind of enabled the, um, uh, the development of, of uh, calculators, um, electronic calculators. That whole notion of putting, you know, microprocessors, putting things on uh, miniaturizing electronics that had, you know, one of its major sort of uh, sources of impetus was, um, was the space program. Um, another was uh, a strange one, which was in the oil instrumentation industry. There was an interest in, in having instruments that could be put down oil wells. Um, and you didn't want kind of the, the, the sort of the, the things that were kind of uh, figuring out stuff about the rock and oil well to be these huge hundred foot long kinds of assemblies of electronics because if you if you wanted your your oil drilling to be to go around a bend for both well perhaps because you were trying to kind of get the oil from that other country where you'd have to drill sideways a bit to get to it or for other reasons um, you didn't want the tool that was going to be put down the oil well to be a huge long thing and that led companies like Schlumberger, for example, to be major, very profitable oil instrumentation company, to be big investors in uh, uh, in kind of early microelectronics miniaturization of electronics. But anyway, the end result of all of that was that microprocessors uh, started to exist, and one of the early applications of that was to calculators. 
And so the first calculators were, I think, 19... Let's see, it must have been 1970, 1971. The first electronic uh, four-function calculators started to exist. I mean, I got one. See, I, I have to do this by, by figuring it out. I mean, I was... Um, uh, let's see, I got the first one of those was, I was probably 10 years old, maybe. So that would make it 1969, 1970. So of, on that time frame. And so what happened first was that there were these uh, four function calculators that were not terribly big. Um, they were, um, I guess there had been, yeah, there were desk calculators, electronic desk calculators, maybe a couple of years earlier than that. But the pocket handheld ones, they were still a bit bulky. They weren't. They weren't like um, uh, you know. They they were they were still things you could sort of readily hold in your hand, but they were kind of the size of your hand. Um, and those those came in first four function ones, and then then's one with ones with memory. They had a couple of registers of memory, and then um, uh, then scientific calculators came in. There were sort of basically two competing lines of those: the Texas Instruments ones and the Hewlett Packard ones. And uh, sort of the big, the big distinction back in the day, this is 1972, 1973 type timeframe, was uh, Texas Instruments used, you typed, you know, two plus three equals. And, um, uh, or you type two times three plus four equals, and they would give you the answer. And HP used uh, reverse Polish notation. Um, so what it was doing was it said, Give your operators, give your operands. So it will be two, enter three uh, plus, for example. And that would push those things on the stack. And the enter was pushing it up on the stack. And then the equal, then, then, then you give the operator. And, and so the idea was in, in infixed notation, you'd say two plus three, but you can also say plus of two, comma three, or you can reverse that and you can say two, three plus. And so it was using this reverse Polish notation. When they called it Polish notation, this was a notation that Lukiasiewicz had invented, part of the sort of Polish school of logic in the 1930s, had come up with this kind of way of, this was, this was an, a part of the sort of meta-modeling of mathematics, kind of what was the raw material from which you could build up mathematics. We could write down mathematics with words, with formulas and so on, but what were the underlying elements? You know, there are notions of variables and operators and so on. And what did you really need to have? Did you really need to have parentheses? Did you really need to have this and that? And so Lukiasiewicz had developed this notation that was sort of a prefix notation for four things. Now, but by the way, this came out of the tradition of combinators and so on. The, you know, the SK combinators of Schoenfinkel from 1920 had been this way of kind of representing a sequence of operations that would correspond to something in mathematical logic. That led to Lukiasiewicz's version of this, which was then taken, I don't know the details of who figured this out at, at Hewlett-Packard. Um, they decided to use the reverse Polish notation instead of this forward, you know, operation, 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 operand, operand, operand. It was the operands first and then the operator. And that was the, um, uh, that was sort of the big thing in in the um, uh, in the in the early seventies of, of sort of this competition between the uh, the reverse Polish and the sort of forward notation of, of Texas instruments. 
And there are a lot of things where people would say there's fewer keystrokes you have to type to do it in the reverse Polish. I remember, I remember this T-shirt that was circulating. This must have been 1975 or so, um, which was uh, um, a uh, a T-shirt that I guess had said enter greater than equal sign, and it was kind of a a uh, I guess it was an HP promotional T-shirt. Um, that was trying to express the fact that reverse Polish notation was better than this forward notation for calculators. But, but then uh, by the time, I mean, so scientific calculators came in, I think I first got one in 1972 or three, uh, Texas Instruments and HP, and then Casio was, I think, a later entrant in that, um, in that space. Um, and that was... Uh, uh, those calculators had, um, I remember the factorial key was my favorite key. And you could get up to 69 factorial um, before the thing would overflow and go into this uh, sort of strange state. Um, one thing to know about calculators is that, uh, you know, computers use binary arithmetic. They represent all numbers in, in uh, you know, sequences of ones and zeros. In the case of, um, uh, the um, um, in the case of uh, uh, calculators, they tend to use binary coded decimal. So instead of actually representing things in binary, which is sort of the natural way for a computer with with transistors that can be on and off and so on to represent things, they pack into uh, three binary digits. They pack a decimal number. Is that right, or is it four? Um, I'm must be four. Um, binary digits corresponds to a, to a decimal number. Um, the, uh, uh, and the reason they do that is because it was considered too confusing. If you type one over three, one third, you get a result. It's to finite precision on a calculator. Then you say times three, what do you get back? Well, in the way when you do use ordinary binary, you won't get back one. You'll get back 0 0.99999. And that was deemed too confusing. And so in binary coded decimal, you get back exactly one for that kind of computation. So that's kind of a difference between computers and calculators that existed at that time. Uh, but then there were other developments. I mean, I remember this must have been 1980, 1983, maybe, four, visiting Japan and um, uh, being very excited that I could buy a credit card sized, uh, literally a credit card, calculator and I carried that around for for two decades or something in my in my you know along with credit cards I carried around this little calculator um, that was uh, a, a um, uh, solar powered uh, light powered um, uh, credit card sized calculator um, and that was that was something that was uh, uh, had become possible I guess around the early 1980s so that's that's a little bit of the story of, of what I know about um, history of four hunting calculators I mean the the thing that the programmability of calculators became a thing. I mean, I remember the HP 35, for example, an early Hewlett Packard calculator. One of the things they did was they had these sort of application packs where you would get these little little things. No, it wasn't. Maybe it was beyond the HP 35. It was was something along uh, in, in that family of, of calculators. You would get these little magnetic cards that you could stick into the calculator that would um, uh, give it some particular set of formulas that will be useful for some particular application area. And that was kind of a big thing at that time. Um, and then later on, by the 
by the 1980s, I guess, there started to be things like the financial calculators and so on that had, you know, time value of money calculations on them and, and things like this. Um, and I think then much later, there was an attempt to sort of uh, do um, uh, algebraic computation on calculators. And uh, there was a, a, uh, a system called NuMath created by um, a couple of people in Hawaii um, who uh, actually both uh, in their sort of semi-retirement have done a lot of interesting things with Wolfram language and Mathematica. Um, the, um, uh, uh, the, the things that um, uh, that um, new math uh, product was actually for a while distributed by Microsoft it was not a particularly happy experience, I think, for Microsoft. It just wasn't as big a seller as an operating system or something. Um, and then that turned into a thing called Derive that ended up getting bought by Texas Instruments and became kind of the, uh, the foundation for sort of some early algebraic type calculators um, that came out there. Um, I think those are calculators that are still, still in use today. Um, I haven't really followed the world of calculators in so much detail. Um, I, all, I, all I hear is that, um, uh, you know, over the years we've interacted with all these various calculator manufacturers and um, uh, one of the things was, could you run a Mathematica on a, a device with disposable batteries? And I remember saying uh, years ago, saying to these calculator manufacturers, you know, there'll come a time when people don't care about disposable batteries anymore. And I was then amused when Steve Jobs made the decision in the iPhone, just don't let people take the batteries out. It just doesn't, it doesn't, there's no reason to have you be able to exchange the batteries. And um, clearly that's uh, uh, a thing in, um, uh, that that uh, that finally I don't know whether it's come to calculators or whether there's still disposable batteries and calculators. Um, I think that the uh, uh, one of the things, in fact, we built oh nearly ten years ago now, uh, we built a very nice um, kind of uh, uh, Wolfram engine powered calculator for the iPad um, that involved some very interesting user experience design because you know when you're putting in a thousand functions. You can't have a thousand buttons on your iPad UX. You have to have other ways to do it. And so that's actually where we invented this predictive interface that we've used in notebooks uh, for a long time since was invented for our calculator product. The calculator product was never released. Um, and uh, we may still one day release it, um, but it's sort of the ultimate, uh, you know, powered by Wolfram Engine with all the sort of capabilities of Mathematica, but it packaged into a calculator running on the iPad that was sort of that that might have been the ultimate endpoint of some kind of uh, calculator evolution. But in practice, what's happened is that people use Wolfram Alpha, um, and uh, that's, you know, a lot of the, the calculator story has turned into a just get the answers from Wolfram Alpha. Um, the only place where that hasn't happened yet um, is in standardized testing. Um, I mean, I, I must say that I, I don't consider it one of the finest moments in, in kind of the structure of how things work that uh, you know, there's still this idea, you know, the kid who's gonna take the such and such test, you need a hundred dollar calculator to do it. That's kind of goofy given that, you know, on computers and particularly as these tests move to, to a computer environment, um, you really can just, you know, it's just software. And you say, well, everybody should have the same software. Well, that's a different story, but or it's software with the same capabilities. Um, 
but that's a different thing. And it, it's kind of a the notion of the, the, the handheld, you can pick it up and it's separate from your phone, it's separate from your computer calculator, I think is one of those kinds of things that right now is surviving as a sort of a bit of an anomaly from the structure of uh, kind of things like standardized testing and so on. And I think that's um, uh, probably not, um, not one of those things that will, uh, I don't think that, uh, let me tell a story that perhaps is amusing. Um, so this was 10 years ago now, probably. Um, we were building our calculator product and I had a lot of internal disagreement at our company. Was it worth building this thing? Did anybody even care about calculators anymore? And we had our summer school, which we do every year. And we have our summer camp for high school students, which we also do every year, been doing for a long time. And so I, I thought, let me, let me do a focus group and find out what people think about calculators. So I did this with the high school kids and they're like, make a calculator. You really should make a calculator. It'll be so cool. And there are all these different things you can do with a calculator. Do it with college students and, and graduate students and so on. I like, should we make this calculator? And they're like, what? You know, why do you want to make a calculator? We don't care about calculators, but that's irrelevant. Waste of time, bad use of resources and so on. Um, so uh, in any case, that, that, um, uh, the, um, uh, that was kind of, that was 10 years ago now. And I, I don't know, I should probably redo that test. I, I've really been wanting to, it's such a lovely exercise in user experience. We had figured out the user experience for something the size of an iPad of kind of the predictive interface and all these things with buttons and being able to do all these different kinds of things. It's a really very cool user interface. Um, but then it was like, well, let's do the same thing for a phone. And then it's like, oh my gosh, that's even more complicated. Don't know how to do that. So we, we, that's what's one reason we never released that product. Um, but it's something I've really wanted to do. So people think we should do it, you know, send us mail because um, uh, it's, it's something, I'd, I'd love to get evidence that we should do this. Uh, let's see. Oh boy. Um, so many interesting questions here. IC is asking, tell us when, when was cybersecurity considered an important topic in computer science? You know, I think people had known about certain kinds of what we now call exploits a long time ago. I mean, I remember hearing, must have been before 1970, I remember hearing about this thing, oh, there are these students at MIT and they figured out that if you keep typing into a password field, eventually the characters will end up going somewhere else in computer memory and you can break into the computer. And that was kind of a mysterious kind of idea that, um, that that could happen. That was kind of a, a, a sort of a, a, you know, one of those, oh, did you know about this kind of weird thing that happened? So that was kind of a, the very early days um, when it wasn't, when there wasn't any kind of organized sense of, of this being an important thing. I think uh, the, the thing that really uh, a lot of people would view as being the sort of the, the earliest moment when, when sort of cybersecurity became a, uh, more of a thing was the Morris worm. Um, Robert Morris, who I, I, I certainly met, actually met when he was a kid, um, who uh, uh, ended up, I, I don't know all the details of this, but was uh, um, ended up releasing onto the internet. Um, I mean, it, it, the, the story is a bit more complicated because his, his dad who had been a researcher at Bell Labs, uh, who I knew a bit when I was a consultant at Bell Labs back in the early 80s, and had, had been a computer security researcher for the government and, and other places. 
Um, and I, I suppose that gives evidence that there was a field of computer security that was of interest to things like AT&T, Bell Labs, and so on, um, back by in the, 19, in the early 1980s and so on. But it wasn't a thing that was generally known. But the next generation there happened to be uh, creating a, a computer worm um, and piece of what we would now call malware, um, which uh, when he was a student at Cornell, which sort of got released onto the internet and went and infected lots of computers. And it was a self-replicating piece of software that started just taking over computers. I was very proud because uh, in a sense, because our network, this was 1989, I think, um, our network at Wolfram Research um, was not affected by this because I had sort of realized, so, so the good question, how did I know this? Um, how did I know to be worried about this? Good question. Um, so that must have been some prehistory to computer security because I knew that one should be worried about how one connected to the internet and what strange creatures might come from the internet, so to speak. And so I used a, um, a, a Japanese workstation made by Sony Corporation. It's a very weird computer with a Japanese language operating system and so on. We used that as the gateway computer to the internet that time, um, possibly because it wasn't our most valuable computer for the things we were mostly doing, but also because I certainly knew that it was a thing to sort of be obscure in the way you connect to the internet. And when the Morris Worm was created, um, it was uh, compiled for many, it was, you know, an executable program compiled for many common kinds of computers, but not for this weird Japanese computer system. And so our network was not affected, but many people were. And I think that that is, uh, there was a time when a lot of people woke up to the fact that, oh, it really matters, you know, what, what creatures are coming from the internet. Now, I, I realized that I must have known, well, I certainly was very aware of in, encryption and cryptography because I had worked on, uh, well, okay. So, so back when I was working on SMP, the sort of forerunner of mathematical and Waltham language back in 1979 to 1982, um, one of the more ridiculous things that mistakes in a sense that I made was I thought, let's protect the source code of this, let's encrypt it. And so I used an encryption scheme that, um, uh, so in, in those days, encryption was a thing you did, but it was not very well understood. And for example, the Unix crypt program was sort of a standard thing to use to encrypt things. And that was based on essentially the Enigma codes that had been used in, in, in World War II. And it was based on sort of a rotor machine emulated in software. And that was kind of almost the state of the art for sort of everyday encryption. The, the sort of for more uh, kind of serious encryption was more DES, the data encryption standard that had been developed um, by some combination of IBM and, and National Bureau of Standards. And it was a, it was a government uh, thing. And it was, it was based on these very uh, substitution permutation type uh, sequence of things, S boxes and so on. Um, and actually I, many years later, I learned that the design of DES was based on research that had been done on systems that are basically cellular automata back in the 1950s uh, by mathematicians who'd been associated with the National Security Agency and so on. Um, and uh, actually very people had sort of wondered why, why are these particular substitutions used in DES? And the answer is 
related to various properties of, of cellular automaton-like systems that have been studied. In any case, that was the kind of that was the hardware way of doing en encryption. And, and back at that time in the early 80s, sort of the story was very much um, there were um, um, there were kind of um, um, uh, th there were there were kind of there was sort of a mystery about how encryption uh, equipment worked, and that was a time when I think uh, uh, Swiss and Israeli um, those were two sort of sources of, of encryption uh, equipment, um, and it was very much of the of the nature of you know don't you know nobody knows how the box works inside so to speak. In modern times, it's very much this kind of the algorithm is open. It's kind of mathematics that prevents you from breaking the encryption rather than just nobody knows how the box works inside. And that was part of the, the security of things. I mean, I remember I can, I suppose, tell a story from 1984 um, when, uh, uh, let's see, I think almost everybody involved in the story is now dead. So it's probably a story that can be told. Um, it's, uh, it was a story of um, a physicist who was rather a risk-taking fellow who was trying to put together a sort of physicists will um, uh, um, will solve problems for the world um, type of company uh, that he was trying to get me involved in. And um, uh, it was a company where one of its, one of its early sort of gigs was uh, make an encryption system um, and the requirement was that the US government cannot break in one week. And it was a, a gig being done for a bank actually. Um, and uh, the, uh, it was a very, very kind of, um, let's say a, a dubious kind of setup because essentially I think the, the objective was to, to find somebody who would sell out sort of various government secrets for large amounts of money to be able to answer the question of what could the US government not break in one week? Um, but uh, uh, through sort of being on the, on the distant periphery of, 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 of that uh, company that was being put together, um, it was interesting to see the kind of the, the, the collection of, of, um, of sort of, there's this weird sort of encryption thing that's been invented by this person and it's all a lot of mystery about how these encryption systems work. And that kind of, um, uh, uh, well, that, that sort of gave way to things like RSA encryption that came in in 82, 83, 84, that kind of time frame. Um, maybe that had been, maybe that was on the horizon, but it just wasn't thought to be, and it, it wasn't uh, sort of a practical form of encryption, still isn't. It's, it's relevant for key exchange. It's not relevant for the, the big sort of, you know, once you're in motion encrypting things. Um, but I think this notion of, of uh, kind of studying uh, sort of malware and, and how that works and so on. I think that was a, I'm trying to think how that really came in. I mean, um, there are other pieces to this story uh, that there are different moments when people really became aware of computer security. The Morris worm was one of them. Another one was the whole story around Kevin Mitnick and um, this, uh, what became really a, a media frenzy type story uh, that I suppose I can tell pieces of here. Um, that, um, uh, yeah, I, I can tell, I think this is a story I, I, I don't think is harmful to tell. Um, uh, a person called Tsutomu Shimomura, who was, um, I suppose, could be thought of as a protege of mine, who I knew when he was probably 17-ish, um, when I was at Caltech uh, back in the, um, 
beginning of the 1980s. Um, and he was a, a sort of a, a sort of starting out as an undergraduate there, although it didn't, that didn't last very long. But uh, Tsutomu was a um, uh, very um, uh, kind of, I would say, a, a very um, a kind of a, a computer, uh, knew a lot about computers and um, a very impressive kind of computer knowledgeable person. I remember um, just a lot of very detailed things about, about uh, how computers work. And, and he was certainly quite aware of computer security back um, even in, in those days. I, I do have to tell a story about Tsutomu that um, is, is an irresistible sort of personal story because it's just kind of fun. Um, uh, Tsutomu was, was always um, uh, uh, sort of complaining about the fact that his parents were, you know, come from Japan and they lived in the US for ages and they didn't even speak English and they were just total losers and so on. And then, uh, you know, it's hard, hard to tell. Kids, kids say that about their parents from time to time. But, um, uh, uh, but anyway, one of the sort of stories that he told was that uh, saying, well, he'd, he'd spent all this time when he was a kid, you know, collecting jellyfish on beaches in, uh, in Washington state. It's like, okay, I, I mean, I, I happen to remember that, that, um, that story of Sutomu collecting jellyfish. Um, I don't know why I even remembered the story, but it was kind of one of his, uh, uh, you know, uh, proof of, of parental uh, something or other. Okay, so years go by, and um, uh, there's a thing called GFP, the, the jellyfish, the, the protein that leads to bioluminescence in jellyfish. And uh, many years let go by, and eventually there's a Nobel Prize awarded for, um, uh, the, um, uh, for the discovery of that, of that protein. And the, the person who won that prize turns out to be Tsutomu's father. And so this kind of fitted together the, um, the jellyfish collection story with the other things about the losing parents who happened to win Nobel Prizes and, and things like that. So I, I just found that amusing as a, as a kind of a backstory to, to things. But anyway, Tsutomu um, was uh, uh, actually ended up um, sort of after kind of dropping out of Caltech, kind of ended up at Los Alamos, I guess through me in some way. Um, I was a consultant at Los Alamos for a while and um, uh, the Tsutomu had a terrible habit of breaking into computers and then people would sort of have to fish him out of trouble because it's like, no, 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 he's not really trying to break into that government secret computer. Um, and um, actually, I, uh, now that I think about it, I remember a story from Tsutomu's youth. So there's another computer security story about breaking into a computer system by the fact that two computers were both able to access the same printer and being able to go in from one computer and kind of come out from, um, uh, from, from the other computer, so, so to speak. So Tsutomu, um, uh, time goes by and you know he's been working at Los Alamos. I think then he ended up working in San Diego, supercomputer center. And um, then one day, a chap called Kevin Metnick, who I've never met, um, uh, well, somebody breaks into Tsutomu's computer and Tsutomu is all upset because it's like he's supposed to be this you know, sophisticated computer person. And how could somebody break into his computer? Um, and so he starts this big, you know, he's going to find who broke into his computer. And um, uh, that became this sort of big chase of who broke into Tsutomu's computer. And somehow John Markov, who was a reporter at The New York Times, got involved in this and sort of Tsutomu and John Markov were kind of running around the country trying to track down, you know, who broke into Tsutomu's computer. 
And, and I guess that same person had broken into a bunch of other computers around the country and so on, eventually was traced to this chap called Kevin Mitnick, um, who uh, uh, I think was in many ways very similar to Tsutomu, except for the fact that Tsutomu had had all kinds of friends like me who were sort of continually fishing him out of trouble, so to speak. And Kevin Mitnick didn't have that same kind of uh, network of, of, um, of people who are going to explain, no, 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 he broke into that computer, but he really meant no harm type thing. Um, and, you know, you should just consider him a... a um, uh, um, anyway, so, so I think the... Um, um, uh, so I was a little annoyed because I felt that Tsutomu was, was kind of presenting himself as the kind of the... Um, uh, the, the sort of the good guy, so to speak, who was catching the bad guy, so to speak. And I, I really didn't see as much distinction as, um, as, as he wanted to portray. But that whole thing became a book that, that Sutomo wrote with, with John Markoff. It even became a movie, although I, I don't think it's a, it was never a very successful movie. But, but, um, and I, I tried to watch it. It was not very watchable, at least as far as I was concerned. But anyway, that was, um, that's, a, that's another sort of uh, story of... of, of um, of computer security. Maybe I can tell a few computer security stories related to um, our company, which are probably harmless to tell. So I'll tell a story from, um, this must be the early 1990s. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, the, the, um, this was a story of um, our computer gets, computers get broken into somehow. And um, it was a, um, it was, yeah, it must have been just after the web was starting to, to come into existence. And um, we, with some, we tracked down, I can't remember quite how, we tracked down that there's some chat room where people are exchanging passwords that they got from this place or that place. And um, eventually it's kind of, uh, we kind of identify that the handles of people in these chat rooms, I don't know. Um, so somehow it's some kid young, I don't know, 15-year-old-ish in Ohio, in somewhat rural Ohio, who'd been responsible for, you know, the actual, you know, typing the password to, to get into our computer. It wasn't clear they'd done any harm to our computer. They'd broken into it. They'd stored some random stuff on our computer, our computer system that hadn't necessarily done any harm to it. And then it became clear that there was sort of a, a mastermind to this whole thing, who was another kid who lived in Virginia, who, um, uh, who had a website and the website explained, I think it was a website, yeah, explained that he was raising, he was kind of fed up with school and he was gonna raise an internet army to kind of take over the world. So it's like, okay, um, you know, it's interesting, sounds like an interesting kid, um, you know, better if they're not causing lots of trouble. But anyway, so we were, we were like, um, you know, I was thinking maybe it's just contact this kid, you know, sounds interesting. Um, although we were sort of put off because we ended up in this, you know, having this sort of discussion with a chat room and so on with this person and, you know, sort of contact the person. And within a few seconds, you can see that this person is, is trying to break into the computer of the person who's connecting to the chat room that is trying to have, that is having a polite conversation with this kid. So that was like, this is, this is clearly a, 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 there's sort of danger involved here. So, so the FBI got involved in this whole thing, and um, it was uh, it was a, it was a. I mean, these were the early days of computer security, I suppose. But it was definitely a a, a difficult situation because 
there, there was this kid in Ohio who was very clearly identifiable as, as sort of the, the person who had who had broken into our computers. And, and it ended up, you know, a week went by when it was pretty clear that, that you know, who that was and they knew that we knew and all this kind of thing. And somehow that turned into some some terrible, you know, police raid on some some random street in, in Ohio um, in some small town, uh, you know, a week later, uh, you know, kind of long after any evidence that there might have been had been destroyed and so on and so on and so on. It didn't really seem anyway that this was so that was kind of a, to me it was a somewhat heavy-handed response to that situation. But the problem was that the the kid in Virginia, um, who happened to live not not far away from the what was then I, I have no idea of today uh, sort of a computer crimes uh, unit um, uh, in the government, and um, we had certainly talked to them about this, and they were like, "But this is too complicated. This person has you know people in two hundred jurisdictions. You know how are we going to deal with this?" This was sort of an early example of of what has happened in, in a lot of sort of distributed uh, computer activity and so on. And that was it was kind of a, a um, you know, that was sort of the early days of seeing the interaction between kind of the, the uh, and that the basic point was he'd sharded a bunch of, of data across, you know, 200 different people in his internet army, so to speak. And I am curious, I, I should look up what, what happened to that kid. I'm, I'm curious what, um, uh, what became of them. I, I was sort of sorry that I, I felt it was sort of too dangerous to have, uh, to, to contact them. Um, I, I mean, I could tell, I could tell lots of these computer security stories of, of different kinds of times when, when things have happened and, um, uh, and sort of this increasing awareness um, that, I mean, there's certain kinds of, of, um, of things where one has sort of a, you know, at every moment, I suppose it's like, it's like, I don't know, airplane crashes or something like that. Every major one that happens, people say, how did that happen? And then you learn from that. And then that particular one, you know, the metal fatigue one doesn't happen again. And then this one doesn't happen again and so on. And so it has been with computer security as a series of different uh, things, you know, happen for the first time. And then the world reacts to them. I mean, like, for example, in recent times, the solar winds uh, thing and the Neo4j, uh, you know, exploits um, really put highlighted this notion of software supply chains of, and this is kind of one of the, one of the various problems with the you know, open source software and so on is that these chains of, of sort of libraries and things where it's kind of like somebody can commit something to something which leads to some whole chain of, of things changing and so on. But also there's this whole question of where did that software ultimately come from? And when you're delivering a piece of software to somebody, you know, does it have, you know, what, what dependencies does it have on all these things which may end up having, having different exploits that, that exist against them? I mean, I suppose in, in the world today, you know, one of the things I, I suppose it's uh, pretty well known how this works. I mean, you know, people are always looking for exploits. You know, is there a bug in this operating system? Is there a way to break into this phone and, you know, have it uh, do this or that weird thing? And, you know, there's a, there's a continual effort to do that. It's done by governments. It's done by private uh, uh, organizations. And, uh, you know, private organizations, you're kind of like, uh, if you discover a, an exploit, uh, you know, the most 
The most valuable are the zero-day exploits, the exploits which haven't been seen before. So the zero-day is the thing where it's day zero. You know, it's, it hasn't been seen. By the time it's day five, kind of everybody knows about that exploit and people kind of patched for it. But on day zero, it's like you get to attack things and nobody knows to defend against them, so to speak. And so, you know, there's a, it's certainly the, the, the rumor certainly would be that um, you know, the US government will pay twice as much or three times as much or something as anybody else, but you have to sell exclusively to them if you're a maker of such, such things. And sort of it's inevitable, this is a feature of the whole theoretical framework of, of computation and computational irreducibility and so on. It's inevitable that there will be such bugs. It's not a, oh, you know, the world's incompetent and people should be able to track down every possible bug. It's inevitable that as soon as you have computational systems that are capable of, of sophisticated computation, that there will be these unexpected consequences. And that's kind of the theoretical basis of why, why cybersecurity is hard, is you know, as soon as you have, if you have that thing that's just a, a router that's connecting this to that, and it's just a couple of wires, nothing much can be done with that. But as soon as your router has intelligence, maybe it's a firewall, maybe it's something else that has you know, intelligence and it has actual algorithms that it's running, as soon as it's a general purpose computer, then in principle, you can make that general purpose computer do things for purposes other than the ones that it was intended to do things for, so to speak. In other words, once, once, there's this, once it reaches this level of computational universality, then it is potentially exploitable. And that's the kind of theoretical basis for the difficulty of cybersecurity. And it then becomes this question of, well, what did you want that router to be able to do? Well, you have some theorem, some statement, I don't want the router to be able to do this. And then you can try and verify that. And there's sort of a, an effort which has not been particularly successful yet to use sort of automated theorem proving techniques and so on to say, let's just verify this piece of software only does what we say it will do. The problem with that is you have to have a description language for what you say it will do. And if, if the description of what you don't want it to do is straightforward, like, oh, you don't want it to scribble on memory that doesn't have access to or some such other thing, then, then that might be a thing you can, you can verify. But if it's more, oh, I don't want it to do something different from what I thought it should do, that requires that you have, you know, the what you thought it should do is defined by the code that you originally put in. The then if you say, I don't want to do something different, you have to have another piece of essentially code that defines what you want it to do and, and doesn't really help you very much. Um, so uh, the, um, oh, Sandra is asking, are there, are there hackers at our company that look for exploitable bugs um, in our systems? Uh, the answer to that is yes. Um, and uh, you know, this, is a, this is a standard thing that any, any company will do is, is to try and uh, if you can find uh, exploits yourself, it's, it's better than, um, than having the world find them. The, the challenge is always, once you find potential exploits, it's like, how do you fix them? And sometimes there's a, there's a cost to fixing them, and it sometimes takes a while to fix them. And, and so it's like, you know, you don't want to like put on a bulletin board, here's an exploit, we haven't fixed it yet. Um, and so that's always a, a, a challenge to, to see what you best do with that. Um, Let's see. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody, somebody pointing out something which I'm, I'm forgetting here from Happy here. Um, cybersecurity for the phone system. Yeah, I mean, there used to be these things, I, sort of a little bit before my time, that they called blue boxes or something, which were things where, yeah, this is, this is, a, a, this is a fun kind of thing. So, you know, 
on the phone system, in a sense, the only interface to the phone system was a phone back in the day. And so you would always be just dialing a number on the phone. Whatever you want to do with the phone system, you got by dialing a number on the phone. And so there were uh, you know, things like make a call, you know, pay a toll, this kind of thing. They were all represented by essentially numbers on the phone or, or by the time touch tones came in. So the you know, originally rotary dial phones where, where you just have this, this dial and you turn it around. And then it's, you know, this is the reason why in the US, the area codes for, you know, New York is, you know, uh, 212, Los Angeles is, Chicago is 312, Los Angeles is 213, these kinds of things. The big cities have small numbered area codes and only dinosaurs like me actually memorize area codes because who cares anymore? But, but um, the, um, uh, in, in, um, the reason that there were small digit area codes for the big cities was that on a rotary dial phone, the way that, you're, uh, uh, the way that you can tell what number you're calling is, you, you turn the dial and then the dial kind of has a spring and it kind of goes back to its original state again. And it goes bip, 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 click, 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 click. One click for every number it goes past. So when you dial a two, it's just got two clicks. It doesn't take very long. If you dial like a zero, it's got lots and lots and lots of clicks as it goes, um, as it goes around uh, sending those clicks down the phone line as its way to describe the, you know, as its way to essentially transmit data. So that was the original sort of approach. Well, the, the very original approach was you just pick up the phone and a phone operator is there sort of at the other end of that wire and it's going to connect things together. But as, as soon as standard trunk dialing of, of going, of dialing over sort of trunk lines that went long distances and so on started, one had to have things like these rotary dial phones that would transmit their signals in that way. So then touchstones came in. And um, I remember, uh, well, so touchstones are this kind of clever idea where you have these, these sort of two linear changes of, of uh, frequency level uh, on the two X and Y directions across a phone, across the, the numbers on a, on a phone dial, on a phone, you know, where push buttons on a phone. And there are these two frequencies and uh, they, the, 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 the frequencies change as, as you go in the X direction with the numbers and the other one changes in the Y direction. And you're playing these two frequencies at the same time. And it's hard to whistle two frequencies at the same time. You know, birds have syrinxes that allow them to sort of uh, uh, sing sort of different frequencies at the same time. We humans have a vocal tract that doesn't allow us to do that. So you don't get to whistle the touch tones very well. Um, so, but that was the sort of the way that you sent data from phones was these touch tones. And uh, the, um, I remember when I was a consultant at Bell Labs, that um, some of the people who'd invented that technology were, were there. And um, they, they always, they described, and I never really got to the bottom of this. They, they described that they had a device that would just generate somehow, could make any phone call anywhere and could sort of access the phone system in any way that you chose by just giving it the right touch tone, so to speak. But I, I never really got to the bottom of what that quite was. Um, but um, in any case, back in the 70s, I guess, people, uh, uh, it was a it was a, a a sort of Silicon Valley area popular thing, and I think Steve Jobs was involved in this, and and so on. And other people who are making these little boxes that would allow you to make free phone calls because they would send the signals, the touchstone signals that would represent some billing 
you know, the, the, back in the day, it was like make a, a reverse charged call or something or make a third party build call. And all of that was represented by touch tones. And I remember, I, gosh, I don't even know whether this is still a thing. There used to be telephone credit card numbers, which were numbers that were associated with your phone number um, and with, had some extra digits. Um, and you know, when you would make a phone call, you could key in the number you were calling, and then you would key in your credit card number, which was your phone credit card number, and everything was touchstones. So everything was transmitted that same way. And so that was kind of a, an early sort of piece of hacking was just send weird touchstones to the phone. Um, and I, I don't know exactly how those blue box things worked, but I think that they just knew the codes that were being used to, to sort of do, operate the phone system a certain way. I do have to tell one story about this. So I was, this was 1981 or 82, and I was in England, um, and uh, was a, a time when, actually I was working on SMP, uh, forerunner to Mathematica and Wolfram Language and so on. And uh, for various reasons, I had, was using the computer of a friend of mine who had a computer company in England, and uh, we were sort of camping out for a couple of weeks doing a bunch of stuff on his computer system. And I needed to transfer some data, uh, I think from the US. And uh, so at that time it was using acoustic coupled modems. So you would, you would like pick up the phone and you would you know, put the phone into these rubber cups, the, the physical phone receiver into these rubber cups. And if you listen, you know, if you pull it out of the rubber cup, you would hear it chirping as it sent data in, in you know, as, a, as audio signals. And the, 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 the um, modem would be modulating, demodulating. It would be taking those acoustic signals and turning them back into digital data and so on. Okay, so anyway, so I tried to do this and it doesn't work. And um, the, uh, uh, this was a transatlantic call. And in those days, transatlantic calls were, many of them were made by satellite but there were a, a limited number of transatlantic cables and it was, it was not quite as, you know, it wasn't as sort of routine and fiber optic and so on as it is today. So anyway, so this was a Sunday evening, I think. And um, I'm trying to make this work and it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We call the, the, the operator, say, we're trying to do this call, you know, what's going on, what's going on. And eventually we, we like, uh, you know, we get transferred to this person, to that person, that person. And eventually we get transferred to the person who, who appeared to be, I, I think maybe even said they were sort of the chief engineer in the, in the UK phone system on duty that evening. They said, what are you trying to do? So trying to do this. Says, well, why don't you dial star such and such, such and such, some four digit thing. He says, that will switch off the echo suppressor and will allow you to get you know, data to transmit correctly. And it indeed worked. But it was kind of amusing that there was this code that you just typed in, and it was a phone number. You know, it was a piece of a phone number, so to speak, that would switch off some piece of the of the of the infrastructure that was dealing with. Well, that in that case, it was probably echo suppression because of something to do with the way that the the um, phone signals were being transmitted by different through different um, I don't know through cables and satellite and so on. Um, but I just to me, it was kind of a, a notable thing. First of all, that that 
that it was possible, at least in England at that time, that there was a, I mean, it's sort of inevitable, that there's a, you know, a chief engineer on duty at some time. And that if you go through enough levels of phone calls, you eventually get to that person and they can just tell you, dial this number and, um, uh, and it will change the characteristics of the phone system in some kind of electronics type way, because the only interface to the phone system is dialing phone numbers. Um, and certainly, you know, there are certainly myths about the idea that, you know, if you dial exactly the right phone numbers, you can start, you know, uh, doing all kinds of crazy things in the whole infrastructure of, of, uh, of the US and so on. Um, anyway, uh, SLR asks, if nature is fundamentally computational, then what are the bugs in nature? The bugs in nature are the things we don't expect. They're the things that if, if, if we think we know the laws of nature, and then we say, well, what are the consequences of those laws? The bugs are the things that we didn't expect, the things that are the, you know, if you, if you think you make up a theory of gravity, who expected black holes? Um, they're the, that's what a bug, in a sense, is in a program. You think you made a program that does a particular thing, but actually the program crawls out and does something different. And, and that's, that's the nature of bugs there. So I have just a couple more minutes here. Um, Aaron is asking, can I talk about Steve Jobs' next step approach to software? Does it have an ongoing legacy? Funny you should ask that question. So I've been going back and I've been writing this piece, which hopefully will get finished real soon, about the making of the new kind of science book of mine, which, which started in 1991. And uh, actually that was 1991 was when I switched to using Next computers. Um, and so I was, we were just trying to reconstruct the... Um, uh, software that I'd been using at that time, and we found a virtualized emulation of the next computer. And um, uh, in fact, just this morning, the uh, person who does uh, computer system stuff for me was bemoaning the fact that he'd managed to get this next step interface up and running. And he was disappointed that it wasn't more interesting than it was, because he said when he'd been in college back in the day, you know, he'd sort of uh, lustered after the next computers, which he didn't have access to because he thought they were super cool. Um, and now he finally has, you know, is using Next Step because we got it working in this virtual machine for this historical reconstruction that I'm doing. And he's like, oh, it's not that interesting. And I was pointing out the reason it doesn't look that interesting to you is because a lot of those user interface features are things that became part of the standard canon of user interface technology subsequent to that time. At the time, they were they were really notable, and uh, and, and later they they you know they became you know partly when Next was absorbed into Apple again and so on, they kind of became par for the course for for how user interfaces work. You know, I think there are many things about Next Step that were interesting. I mean, one of them was PostScript was its native uh, rendering environment. So everything that was on the screen was being rendered through PostScript. PostScript was this page description language that was originally developed for, for laser printers. Um, it was, uh, and originally the Apple Laser Writer was the first uh, uh, thing that used PostScript and made by Adobe, um, made by John Warnock and Chuck Geschke and so on. Um, in, uh, uh, and PostScript was um, uh, the, um, uh, you know, there, there was sort of this, there had been a, a zoo of different sort of standards for how you control your laser printer. But then there was this kind of fairly clean, actually reverse Polish based, as it turns out, language for um, uh, 
is it reverse or is it forward Polish? No, it's reverse Polish. Um, language for describing uh, how to draw vector things and so on, and particularly how to draw fonts, how to draw the spline curves of fonts and so on, uh, Bezier curves of fonts um, to make, to form letters. Um, the, the, um, that was, uh, you know, because letters, you know, how do you make a letter? This was a thing that people had kind of, uh, you know, I think um, Albert Dürer has a book about this from, when was it? The 1500s, something like that. Am I right? Am I off by centuries? I'm not sure. But, but um, making font characters, forming letters, you know, back in the time in antiquity, people were forming letters, the stonemasons were forming letters by, you know, uh, chipping them out of things and so on. And there was a sort of question as they became more, you know, how do you describe a letter? Is a letter a combination of circles and straight lines? Well, no, it's not quite that. It's something a little bit different than that. Mathematically, when it got mathematicized, it's really pieces of cubic curves are a typical way to make the forms that we use to construct letters to make fonts and so on. And that got kind of captured in postscript as Bezier curves and such like um, that, that had been originally made um, for uh, Bezier curves were originally made, I think, by, um, uh, well, two competing technologies. One was Boeing, uh, people at Boeing dealing with uh, airfoil design, and one was people at, I think, Citron in France dealing with kind of uh, car design. I have to say that the, um, uh, well, I had an interesting experience back in the early 90s visiting some car companies and things and talking about the ways that they described geometries and uh one company was like uh they were saying well yeah we really want to get into using splines and things like that but we're still stuck in sort of piecewise linear and it's like oh that's why the cars of that company look kind of boxy so to speak is because that's the mathematics that they're using to describe the shapes of cars um but anyway let's see we were talking about um postscript and so uh one of the things that was originally steve jobs is sort of uh, idea was to use PostScript as the description language on the Apple laser writer. And there was sort of this funny thing that the, the processor inside the laser printer was more powerful than the processor on the Mac that was driving it. So when early desktop publishing came in, part of what made that possible was the fact that the laser printer was running PostScript. You could have these beautiful fonts and so on. Bezier curves where the final figuring out of which actual pixels would get turned on and off happened inside the printer. What the, what the computer was sending was just this postscript description of, you know, draw this curve with this cubic function, but then the printer was what was rendering it. So one of the things that then happened with the next step was that the, uh, screens had not been done that way before. Screens, like on Sun workstations, for example, were bitmaps. You would just assemble with a bunch of operations. This is the assembly of bits of, of, um, that were on the screen. Black, it's on the screen. But the next step, there was the idea of using PostScript. And one feature that had was whatever you had on the screen was described in this resolution-independent way in terms of, of vector graphics. And if you wanted to print it, even though the printer was higher resolution than the screen, you would immediately get a good, a good rendering of that. That was one kind of thing. I think that the other thing that was a big kind of idea was the interface builder on Next. I have to say, I never really used that myself. We used it in the creation of, um, uh, of, of the user interface for Next. I mean, the, the history of this was for us, back in 1987, we were developing Mathematica and uh, through um, 
a couple of connections. Uh, I ended up um, interacting with Steve Jobs, who at that point was um, thinking of Next as a company that was going to make computers for the higher education market. And um, uh, we kind of made this deal. Matica will be bundled on every Next computer. And Steve paid us some modest amount of money per computer for that um, for the privilege of doing that, so to speak. Um, and uh, that was, um, and so, so we kind of got involved in working on the next computer before the next computer was, was out. It was released in late 1988, I think. Um, and uh, actually, I, I happened to just find a few days ago um, an email that I sent to Steve Jobs uh, back in 1987 um, at a time when he was really interested in what could he bundle on the next computer? What kind of stuff, you know, there's a certain amount of storage. He was using optical disks as a storage medium and they were had a lot more density than, than other kinds of things. What could he put on the next machine that would be useful to people? So I, I, we were talking about, I don't know who invented this term, maybe him, maybe me, I don't know, of referenceware as a, as a thing a bit like software, but it was like things you would make references to. And so I, I sent him this mail um, actually, I think it must have been a physical, I think it was it was typed on a computer, but sent in a physical form somehow, maybe as a fax, maybe as a physical mail, I don't really remember. But um, in any case, it was a description, a few pages description of different kinds of things that you could have as reference material. And it's kind of amusing reading. Um, it's talking about how well some of the mathematical reference material is going to be irrelevant because of Mathematica, which was at the time when this was being that I wrote that note in 1987. The working name that we had for it at that time was Polymath. So that's what the, the note refers to. Anyway, I just tweeted out this note a few days ago. Uh, it's kind of fun to see as a kind of historical artifact of how one was thinking about things in those days. And I was talking about, you know, maps will be a good kind of reference material, but they're very big and they're not going to fit and so on. And, uh, uh, you know, talking about other kinds of reference material one might have. But anyway, so, so back in those days, we were working on the next, actually, Teo Gray, a longtime person at our company who's, who's gone off and done all kinds of other interesting things, particularly around chemistry. Um, but Teo was the person who... Um, uh, I was the original developer of the notebook interface for, for, for our uh, uh, technology stack back in 1987 um, and uh, was developed partly on the Mac, but partly on the Next. And Teo was, was living in California at the time and was going over to, to um, uh, Palo Alto uh, where Next was. Next had taken over the facilities of Xerox Park at 3333 30, 33 Coyote Hill Road, if I remember right. Um, the uh, um, and um, uh, they were very. Steve was always very kind of um, secretive about how things worked, and so uh, Teo would have to physically go there, and there were you know guards at every at every point, so to speak, and and work on the next computer and develop. This was before the next computer was out and about. Um, I and uh, uh, developed. Um, uh, the first version of Mathematica and the sort of the best first interface, first user interface for Mathematica was developed on the next computer. And that's where kind of the notebook paradigm was in large part developed on, on the next computer, um, along with the Macintosh. But the next computer was much easier to develop for. And that was a place where this interface builder technology, which was sort of a graphical interface for building interfaces, um, uh, existed. Um, and Teo made, made much use of that. 
you know, I have to say one thing I'll, I'll be writing about in this piece that I'm writing about the, um, the creation of the NKS book was, um, let me leave it as a bit of a cliffhanger, the bizarre bug in Postscript that we found uh, sort of at the last minute in printing the NKS book back in 2002 and the strange story of tracking down that bug and, and so on. And, and uh, it's, it's strange that a bug would have existed in Postscript by 2002, given the, the huge amount of, um, uh, that had been done with it by that time. But anyway, a little, little bit of a response on that. Um, it's, uh, okay, Sandra is saying in the Netherlands, if you dial hash 31 hash before the phone number, uh, other people won't see your phone number. Yeah, yeah, th those things are, what is it in the US, star 86 or something like that. That's the, that's the ANI data. Uh, what is it, automatic name identification code that gets sent before the, um, uh, when, when a phone connects to another phone, it sends a packet of information about the originating number. And, and that's the thing, there, is, there are ways to blank that out, at least unless you're calling like an 800 number, which, which captures those things. Um, but that, that's, uh, yeah, it, that there, are, um, there, are, there are few of those codes that exist um, that are sort of known. And um, uh, there are no doubt other ones that are, you know, 10 digits long, that um, only only the people deep in the bowels of the of the phone system understand what those are. Um, okay, one comment here, and then I really need to go um, from Captain here. So, is evolution a bug or a feature? Uh, is the fact that it is well, you know, it depends on what you're looking at, how, how you're looking at it. I mean, I think that um, uh, the, was it to be expected that life of the kind we have on, on Earth could arise from the, the underlying physics that exists in the universe? To us today, it still seems like a bug because we don't know how it works. Eventually, it will probably seem like a feature because we can trace the pieces and say, this is why it worked that way. But I think anything, anything that's still unexplained, we could say was a bug. And it only becomes a feature when we can have kind of a human narrative that says how you can document it and make it make sense. That would be my, my sort of instant philosophy on that, um, on that topic. All right, I think we have to wrap up here. Actually, I'm going to a, a day job live stream about Wolfram Language Design, uh, heading for version 13.1 of Wolfram Language uh, 35 years later. That's what we get to. Anyway, thanks for all those interesting questions. I see there are a lot more to be saved up for, uh, for our session in a couple of weeks. So thanks and uh, bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.